The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or Jackie, Annie, or Lacey Wright. Welcome to the November 10th, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader. My first guest today will be Karamit Ryder to talk about the first in-prison Bachelor of Arts completion program in the UC system. In the second segment will be Kuhn Kim, Jane Page, and Gavin Cameron Webb talking about Pandemic, Kuhn's original screenplay that will be a play reading on Zoom this Sunday, November 15th. Welcome back to the show. This fall, UC Irvine launched the first in-person Bachelor of Arts completion program in the UC system. My guest, Karamit Ryder, returns to the show to talk about this program and her involvement in it. Karamit Ryder is a professor with appointments at UCI's Department of Criminology, Law and Society and UCI's Law School. She studies prisons, incarcerated persons, rights, and the impact of prison and punishment on individuals, communities, and legal systems. Her research is based on interviews, archival, and legal analysis, where we will take that into where this program meets the moment. Karamet has worked as an associate at Human Rights Watch, has testified before state and federal legislators, She comes to us today from her home in Long Beach, California. Welcome back to Ask a Leader, Kermit Ryder. Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. It's an honor to be here. Oh, please, this honor is mine. The things that you keep track of while the rest of us are doing such pedestrian other kinds of projects. So I want this main program to talk about how the first in-prison Bachelor of Arts completion program, it came to be what models might have been coming from other states. We'll talk more about the input that has come from actually the incarcerated population themselves. What's the origin story of this? Who got this started? It's a great question. And I think it was a number of people kind of coming together at the right moment with a passion for this work. So personally, I actually got started with an interest in prison issues by teaching in prison in college in the early 2000s in Boston. And I was just interested in teaching, had some friends who were doing it and started volunteering in college. And that was how I set down on my life's path of studying and advocating around prison issues. So I've been involved in prison education programs for more than 20 years. After college, I worked in New York for a few years and I helped to start a program to help people prepare to take the GED on Rikers Island in New York. And then when I was in graduate school at Berkeley, I taught in what was then the only associate's degree program in the state of California at San Quentin State Prison. So this This is something I've long been involved in and loved, and it's been a dream of mine to get the UC system involved in prison education. And being in the Department of Criminology at UCI has turned out to be a really fortuitous place for that. So I have a number of other colleagues who also have done work over their careers in prisons and and were similarly excited about this. And the time started to seem incredibly right a few years ago because the state of California The legislature allocated funding to encourage the community colleges across the state to start offering in-person face-to-face classes in the state prisons. And, you know, whereas 10 years ago when I was in graduate school, there was only one associate's degree program in the state. Today, 
every one of the 35 prisons in the state has community colleges offering face-to-face classes in those prisons and giving prisoners the opportunity to get an associate's degree. And when you say every of the 35 prisons, that means the state and federal prisons. And I mean, so we know exactly what kinds of institutions you're talking about. So I'm talking about the state prisons. So California okay. has 35 state wow. prisons and the legislature um, basically made it so that the community colleges across the state um, would earn as much from offering credits in prison as out of prison. So they kind of put some financial backing behind encouraging the community colleges to start uh, literally walking into the prisons and, and offering these associate's degrees. And that's unprecedented across the U.S., right, to have this kind of state support. And I think we can talk more about this, but I think it's really representative of the ethic of higher education in the state of California, where there's an idea that we have, you know, people think about the UCs, but the whole vision of higher education in the state is so beautiful with the idea of the community colleges, the Cal States and the UCs offering these multiple pathways for people to get a, a higher education degree. And I think there's a real sense in this state that's a, you know, very high uh, incarceration state that there is a lot of work to be done to involve those who are incarcerated in this education system. And it's really exciting to see California taking that lead. So Karamet, what, if you have handy, what are the completion rates of the associate degrees of incarcerated persons in the history of California? Do you have that? So that is a very complicated question, which we can talk a little more about, which is that thousands of prisoners across the state have enrolled in these classes and completed some kind of associate degree. But one of the challenges the state has faced is that at least when this initiative was rolled out, community colleges weren't required to offer specific classes to students. And so some colleges were just offering whatever they could get faculty to teach. And so not that many of the classes being offered have been degrees that are readily transferable to either the Cal States or the UCs. And so there's a lot of debate about, while we know that thousands of students have enrolled in these classes and taken them, there's a lot of debate about exactly how many students have completed which degrees. And so I can talk more about that. It's part of what's so exciting about our program is we've got a cohort of students who we know are completing a UC eligible degree and we want to motivate more community colleges and Cal State or UC partnerships across the state to kind of make sure people are getting the right courses. So it's kind of a general number. We know thousands of people in the state have enrolled in these courses, but we don't know It's a little hard in part because prisoners can move around from facility to facility so much. We don't know exactly how many have which degrees because lots of people just have lots of courses from a whole different, you know, if they've been at say three or four different institutions, they might have courses from a whole range of of different community colleges. Right. And from when you first were on the show and we were making the central piece, your book on solitary confinement. And so there may be terms for a person's incarceration they, that may take them out of being able to be enrolled in any kind of courses. Exactly. Part of the vision of this initiative in California is that anyone should be able to participate, but it is true that people in certain conditions of confinement probably wouldn't be permitted into a classroom space. And there are some community colleges in the state who've been offering correspondence courses to even reach those populations over the last few years. So it's just that some limited subset of people in prison might not be able to actually be in a classroom space. Of course, I should say this all comes with the caveat that this has all changed since March with the onset of the pandemic, because there is no in-person education or programming happening in prisons anywhere in the state right now. So that's come to a grinding halt. Exactly. Okay. Wow. 
So since it's a UCI launched program mm-hmm. inside the UC system, can you give us an idea of the extent to which all the schools on the UC Irvine campus would be involved in this program? Absolutely. And this is part of what's so exciting. I'm, I feel so proud of uh, <laughs> UCI in this initiative and the ways that people across campus have mobilized and support. And I talk to alumni every week who also have heard about it and are so excited and proud of being alums of this institution. And I think it speaks to what I think of as the ethic of UCI in particular as a, you know, who sees itself as one of the younger UCs, is really proud of being a diversity serving, minority serving institution, has a lot of infrastructure that I've learned about just in the process of putting this project together, Mm. like student success initiatives to really design to support non-traditional students, transfer students, students who are, you know, we often say systems impacted, whether that's foster care or military or prison in case, right? And so I think when I and, and the faculty I've been working with on this kind of started talking to senior administrators on campus about this, just across the board, the response has been, this is just exactly in line with the mission of the university in a way that people are really excited to support and amplify. And it's just so wonderful to be part of an institution where that's been the universal response. And so it is truly, while there's basically four core faculty members, three of us happen to be in criminology law and society working on this. And one is actually in biological sciences. So there's this core team of four, but we have an advisory board of faculty from across the campus. And two years ago, I went before the Dean's Advisory Council to talk about this project. And nearly every dean on campus pledged two courses to get this program off the ground. So they basically said, we will ensure that our faculty will make sure two faculty from the school get to teach a course in this program as part of their normal teaching load. And that's been so powerful in terms of fundraising and talking about this project that there's been that kind of support across the campus. And basically, the only deans that didn't support it were ones who run professional schools where it wasn't quite clear what the best way for them to offer faculty towards a bachelor's degree were. They're still supportive. They just didn't necessarily pledge those courses. So that's one piece of the support. In terms of technical pathway we're building right now, we're really talking about it as a project that is to be a model of what we hope to see all over the state again and again, both in terms of expanding the degree options available Mm -hmm. to people in prison and also in terms of expanding what we're thinking of as a triangle with a community college and a UC and a prison partner, the three of them working together to build a bachelor's pathway. So our triangle is just, you know, we're seeing it as just a demonstration triangle to show how readily this can be done and to kind of build a model that's really easy to replicate to put all the infrastructure in place so people can pick it up and run with it. So our triangle is with Southwestern Community College in San Diego and with Richard J. Donovan or RJD, which is a prison in Southern San Diego. And we're really excited about this triangle because the community college we're working with was really a leader in the state in ensuring that they were offering a transferable associate's degree. So state is part of this beautiful system of higher education I mentioned. If you complete an associate's degree with a certain set of courses in the community college system and a certain GPA, there are all kinds of guarantees that you can then transfer into the Cal States or the UCs, but you have to get those courses right. And so Southwest and San Diego has been a real leader making sure that they were offering their associate's degree students the right courses. And once we started to build a partnership with them a few years ago, we actually agreed that the best set of courses for this demonstration project would be sociology for a whole lot of reasons we can talk about if you want to get into the details. But basically, there's a limited set of courses that community colleges can offer that are transferable to the UCs. 
sociology is one of those. And UCI already had in place an automatic agreement with Southwest Community College and UCI sociology department saying, if you complete the associate's degree sociology courses with a 3.5 GPA, you are automatically admissible to UCI. And so it's just this perfect pathway of we have a cohort of students at Donovan Prison in San Diego who've completed the degrees that make them automatically admissible just as anyone else in this community college, incarcerated or not, would be to UCI. They would have completed those courses, but for the pandemic. Um, so, But they are on track to complete them as the community college is able to offer those courses. For those of you who just joined us, my guest is Karamit Ryder. She is a professor at both UCI's Department of Criminology, Law and Society and UCI's Law School talking about the first in-prison Bachelor's of Arts completion program in the UC system that's now, it's been launched this fall at UC Irvine. I just want for all the listeners to join me in sort of helping understand what is the classroom going to look like since you said that the pandemic has sort of stalled this in-person kind of experience. So will they all be in the same class? It's a great question. So I should say first, we've been getting all this wonderful attention for launching. And in the sense that we have all these agreements in place, I suppose we're technically launched, but our hope had been that we would have matriculated our first cohort of students this fall because of the pandemic, all classes ceased in March at the prison. And so we're not sure when this first cohort of students will complete their associate's degree. We hope it will be within the year and then we will matriculate them. But that is the, the launch is sort of an aspirational, right? The project is ready to go. We've got it's ready. That's um, a launch. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but so the, to the classroom. The, yeah, I'm so curious how that works. Yeah, exactly. The, and that, I mean, the reason I preface it with this explanation is that we're figuring out how the classroom will work, right? Before the pandemic, yes, all these students would have been in the same classroom. And the idea is that they would probably take about two classes a term. And usually the way this is structured is that often these classes in prisons are co-taught so that faculty can drive down together, kind of take turns. But usually it would be like a one block, right? So say one three-hour block a week. Maybe the people at Donovan would, would take two classes a week. And yes, pre-pandemic, they would have all been in the same classroom together. Um, one of the things we're really taking this time, this delay to work on, is to think about all the possible ways we might be offering classes in the future. And one of the things we've said about the project from the beginning is we want students matriculated from Donovan Prison to have as close as possible to the same experience any UCI student would have. And right now, the experience UCI students are having is being in Zoom classrooms, right? And, and I think that remote online education is going to continue to be a factor in education. So you know, one of the things we're already talking about with the prison system is, are there possibilities for setting up Zoom classroom spaces? And is that one option we're going to have, especially if there are limitations on people being together in the same space for more than a year. So that's one possibility. Our ideal has always been that we will be in person in a classroom space together, just as we would be on the UCI campus. And that's definitely what we're working towards and what was happening with the community college we're partnered with. But we know that things are changing really fast in higher ed. And our hope is it's another way in which UCI has been a leader, I think, in terms of really developing high quality remote education. And our hope is that we can bring some of that into the prison, too. And that might make it even more accessible for a broader range of people over the longer term. And I know people are going to be Zoom fatigued, uh, mm -hmm. I mean, for good, perhaps, mm -hmm. at some point. Mm -hmm. But a hybrid of remote, distant learning that existed prior to the pandemic, if some sort of distant learning platform would allow for 
incarcerated people, and I don't know what we're going to call our the traditional students that are on campus, mm-hmm. to get mm-hmm. them together in a distant learning mm-hmm. classroom. Absolutely. And so some of the things we've talked about are that to the extent we can get that technology for distance learning into the prison, that would be amazing for things like office hours, right? For all of the kinds of resources that students would have on campus that will be harder, you know, everything beyond those three hours in a classroom in a week. How do we create those experiences for students? And so I think that's a place where we're really excited about distance learning. And we absolutely, there's interest, not just with faculty and administrators across campus, but graduate students and undergraduates are so excited about this program. And so, you know, one of the things we're really talking about is just as on campus, you would have a graduate student teaching assistant in your class, you would have undergraduate learning assistants. We really want to have those programs for the incarcerated students in the exact same way, right? That we will have graduates and undergraduates who are working with us either, you know, in some cases, maybe actually, you know, undergraduates taking classes with incarcerated undergraduates, but also just kind of working with us as teaching assistants and team players in delivering the best possible education. So to clarify, so that incarcerated people could eventually be those TAs. Absolutely. That's, that is a a possibility we would be really excited about, but also that um, we hope that undergraduates on campus will have opportunities to participate in this program in various ways. And I want to find out where is the funding coming from? This is this is a new program, and I have no idea of knowing what kind of a, an outlay is necessary to make this go. So, th- I mean, there's already uh, some seed money, maybe from what, what you said two years ago with the California state legislature, but where is it going to continue to come? How much are you talking? This is a great question, and we are definitely working really hard on fundraising, although I think maybe this is a good place to work backwards from and thinking about the funding. I think the goal and the important thing to understand is that ultimately we expect that these students will be matriculated just like any other UC student. And so the funding should come from all the sources of any other student, tuition, internal university support, right? Like because this is so many of the bachelor's programs that do exist in prisons in the United States, which are growing growing in number due to increasing federal support, but still relatively small. Almost all of them are private liberal arts colleges offering bachelor's degrees. And so part of the excitement of this model is how does a public university do this? And and one of the ways the public university does it is enrolled students, right? When we enroll students, that brings either direct tuition payments, or if those students are not financially able to pay, then that brings in state and federal funding dollars. And so the foundational model of this is that it will work exactly the same way. And part of why it's so excited to have the UCs involved is that the UCs have a program called Blue and Gold which is a tuition program much more robust than Pell. Um, So the federal program for students who cannot afford an education who are below a certain income level, Pell grants, between the 1990s and the 2010s, prisoners were not eligible for Pell grants. There are now some pilot programs to allow prisoners eligibility for Pell again. Our community college partner is actually a in-prison pilot Pell site. And so these students that we will matriculate in our demonstration cohort are all Pell eligible. Uh, But that is not required because the UCs have this more robust program called Blue and Gold, which was designed kind of exactly to meet these that, you know, understanding that there were limitations on Pell that maybe the state of California didn't want to apply to students who were admitted to the UC system. So Blue and Gold covers things like DACA or Dreamer students. 
And it, the idea is that our admitted students, to the extent Pell doesn't cover their tuition, blue and gold will cover it. And whenever I talk to people around the country involved in higher education in prison, the idea that the UCs have this mechanism to fund the tuition for these students is just mind-blowing and exciting because that is where a lot of the work in these prison education programs is, is in trying to figure out how to get the students tuition paid for. Because of course, the majority of them don't have access to the financial resources to pay the tuition themselves. And institutions don't have mechanisms to just waive tuition. So the fact that the state of California within the UCs has this tuition support program, I think is one of the most powerful assets. And one of the things that makes me really excited that we can build, you know, not just one, but dozens, if not hundreds of these programs across the UCs is, is the existence of that state-based tuition support. That said, there are all kinds of extra costs to running a program in prison, right? Yes. <laughs> and, and our long-term vision is that those will be costs that as these become students who are part of the UCs, just as there are extra costs to supporting transfer students from community colleges or students who are learning English as a second language or students who are systems impacted and all the ways UCI has already invested in supporting, it will start to make sense as there's dozens of these students to have, for instance, a counselor who supports them just the way we have lots of students who've been in foster care and we have counselors who are trained to support them, right? But in the interim, until we have enough students for it to be obvious what resources they need that the university needs to budget for through the tuition they're bringing in, right? We do really need support to get this program off the ground. And to date, some of that support has come from within the institution. The Office of Inclusive Excellence has given us a few seed grants and been incredibly supportive. As I mentioned, those deans have pledged to, to make sure that faculty are able to teach courses in this program as part of their regular teaching load. We got our first external grant from the Michelson Foundation, uh, which is really exciting. And we're hoping that that will be kind of a snowball effect of bringing in more support. Um, so that grant is supporting a formerly incarcerated graduate student to do program development with us over the course of this year. And the hope is still raising money. We're talking to lots of private funders about possibilities for resources because our estimates are that we really need, you know, in the scheme of the UC system, not that much, but a few hundred thousand dollars to get this program off the ground and support the first cohort to graduation. And that's to cover things like right now, there's no internet in prison. So to make sure we can cover the costs of books and copies to get things into the prison, to cover the transportation costs of faculty and teaching assistants getting down to the prison in person in hopes that this is happening in person and to cover a staff person who can help just do all the interfacing of kind of getting students enrolled, right? Because this is all, again, without internet, we need a physical body to kind of help do a lot of the administrative work between the prison and the university. And again, the idea is, you know, once there's a hundred students, it's obvious that their tuition supports that body, but in the interim, we do need some seed funding. And so that's the thing we're working on. We're planning to launch a website in the next month that's going to have a donation button and kind of spreading the word about how all the different ways people can support this work as alums or community members who are excited about it. So Kermit, indulge me a moment where I want to go 70,000 feet over where we are. And mm -hmm. I want to just direct our attention yours, mine, listeners, to the opportunity costs that have come from the last four years of intentional disarray, that mm -hmm. that disarray has to be addressed immediately starting January and mm -hmm. or even starting now, but mm -hmm. that that displaces, that's the opportunity cost to build what you're trying to build with incarcerated constituents of California and to help 
other states also build. So I'm, I'm just disparaging of those opportunity costs are looming over important work that was you know, in the pipeline, but it couldn't maybe get its full sort of attention. And we, have, we are sending one of our US senators who was a district attorney and an attorney general who would be in a great position to be a huge platform for advancing what you're building, but she's mm-hmm. got to hose off a lot of detritus that's mm-hmm. in the national body politic right mm-hmm. now. So I just wanted mm-hmm. to say your due is going to be deferred possibly by all this emergency kind of administrative work that has to take place now forward. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'll say, I'll say a few things about that. One okay. is that, um, you know, before the pandemic hit in the spring, there was actually a, a line item in the state budget to support the Cal States offering um, bachelor's degree completion programs in the prisons. And, and right now, the only bachelor's degree completion program in, in the state is being offered by Cal State Lancaster. And so UC is going to offer, UCI is going to offer the second, and it will be the first in the UCs. And that's in LA really, County. I just want to make sure, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so we want to see both the Cal States and the UCs doing this. Unfortunately, as a result of budget cuts, that support for the Cal States was was cut from the budget. But basically, that support was tuition support that already exists in the UCs in the form of blue and gold. Some of my excitement and passion about this program is that I think we're actually building an infrastructure that will be resilient to all the political tensions that wax and wane (laughs) around whether people who are incarcerated deserve an education and how much we invest in it, right? The idea is that we're building a program that leverages existing mechanisms within higher education in the state of California to include a population that probably should have been included a long time ago, but we are not building a new mechanism, right? We are working within the existing mechanisms. And I think that's really exciting and will make it a more resilient program. You know, another thing I'll say just on a personal note about politics I felt very focused after 2016 on the power of the local, right? As someone who studies criminal justice, I'm often saying that when we think about criminal justice, we often think about widespread federal policy, but in practice, the vast majority of criminal justice decisions are made at not just the state, but functionally the county and city level. And so it's a place where to the extent you want to be involved in politics or social change, I actually think there's a lot of work to be done in our local communities and that work that is successful in really small local areas can then have a really powerful effect. And so I was thinking about all of the challenges we face politically when I was building this program in 2017, 2018, and thinking about the fact that so much good is happening in California, and this is a place where we could demonstrate not just in UCI how other UCs could model this, but as a state, how we could have public higher education in the prisons, and that that might be a model for other states. And so, yes, there are lots of people who are going to have lots bigger political problems, but I have always seen this as a kind of continuity project that has a lot of power, whatever the broader political challenge are And also as a means to really, I think there is a sense across the political spectrum that our outsized investments in incarceration have not paid off, right? Particularly in California, we can talk about the propositions at some point, but in the election. We will in the in a continuation of this interview, we will take that up. So let's talk then about, you gave it a, a reference in a couple of different ways. So I'd like for you to address what you do say 
to skeptics of benefiting the incarcerated population, the libertarians that are all about mm -hmm. no government or little or none, or the victims' rights groups. They're all critical of these programs. Talk about the dividends and the value to the broader society as well as those individuals that are your target population. Our, they're our target population, excuse mm -hmm. me. So I'll start with a statistic that I think is often really surprising to people, which is that 95% or more of all people in prison will ultimately get out. I think we have an idea, especially in a state that's known for having really long prison sentences, that we have locked prisoners up and thrown away the key and that people aren't coming home. But the fact is, thousands of prisoners come back to our communities every day. And that the vast majority of people who are incarcerated in this state will ultimately come back to our communities. So I think that's a really important starting place, right? To, to know <laughs> that almost everybody is coming home. And then to look at the data and understand that people who earn a bachelor's degree in prison have a recidivism rate approaching zero. So wow. in this state, people who come out of prison 30% or more of them go back within a year or two, depending on how you cut the numbers. People who come out of a prison with a bachelor's degree do not go back. So that is in itself just a really powerful investment in public safety and in not spending our dollars on incarcerating them more, right? Um, both. Mm -hmm. So both, both it's kind of a, a, a safety payout and an economic benefit. And then there's been some just fantastic work by RAND over the last few years, meta-analyses of prison education programs showing that for every dollar invested in prison education, you get three, four dollars back in benefits to society because of these low recidivism rates, because of the fact that people don't commit crimes again, because they become functioning taxpaying members of society, because we don't have to pay for them to be back in prison. So there's just a growing body of data suggesting that whatever you think about the ethics of this, that investing in these kinds of programs has really fantastic payouts in a way that investing incarceration without these kinds of programs in the state in the way that we have over the last few decades doesn't seem to have those kinds of payoffs. That is going to be in my every, well, when we get back to cocktail parties and uh, other forums, that's, that's, I'm going to say that every other, every other paragraph that's going to be in my in my it's really powerful. Table. It's very, very powerful. Well, we're going to do a, a continuation of this interview in a separate segment, podcast on askaleader.com. But for this moment, I would like to thank Kermit Ryder for all your time that you're giving us today on Ask a Leader. Thank you so much for taking the time to cover this issue. In case you can't tell, it's near and dear to my heart. Yes, and thank you. My guest was Karamit Ryder. She has a joint appointment at UCI's Department of Criminology, Law and Society and UC Irvine's Law School. And we're talking about the launching of the first in-prison Bachelors of Arts completion program in the UC system. Stay tuned for Kim Kim, Jane Page, and Gavin Cameron Webb talking about pandemic. Welcome back to the show. My next guests are Kyung Kim, Jane Page, and Gavin Cameron Webb. Kyung Kim is a humanities professor at UCI, Jane Page at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts, and Gavin Cameron Webb, an independent director. The topic of this interview is Kyung's 
fresh as can be play for this moment, pan damn it. Hyung is a creative writer, a scholar, a film producer, and currently a professor in the Department of East Asian Studies and Visual Studies at UCI. He's worked with internationally renowned film directors such as Lee Changdong and Martin Scorsese. Hyung's author of the Remasculinization of Korean Cinema, Virtual Hallyu. How do I say that? Virtual Hallyu. Korean Cinema of the Global Era, Hegemonic Mimicry, Korean Popular Culture of the 21st Century, and a Korean language novel entitled In Search of Lost G. Hyung's co-produced and co-scripted two award-winning feature films, Never Forget, a Sundance Film Festival main competition, and Housemaid, a Cannes Film Festival main competition award. And he co-scripted film screenplay, The Origins of a Detective, selected for Best Film Development Project by the Korean Film Commission. Pandemic is his first theater screenplay. Hyung completed his Bachelor's of Arts at Oberlin College and his PhD in Cinema Studies at USC. Another guest is one of the co-directors of Pandemon is Jane Page. She's a regular guest. I'll introduce her briefly. Jane's directed Shakespeare plays all over the U.S. In addition to her professional work, Jane's taught and staged productions at universities. And most recently is Human Error was a groundbreaking play, one of the first on the Zoom platform. Jane's also gone big into many innovative community projects and she's applied theater techniques and education and remains involved in community projects for her work at UCI and her other campus and community work. She's been honored many, many times over for her service. And finally, Gavin Cameron Webb is an English director who's been working in the US and abroad for over 40 years. Among his productions at UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts was Angels in America. More recently, Gavin has been working with refugees as they seek asylum in the United States. In 2018, along with Jane Page, he began developing Asylum Anguish, a devised piece of theater to illustrate the courage and resilience of these refugees. Gavin has taught at the Juilliard School, State University of New York, and Southern Methodist University. He served as artistic director for the Studio Arena in Buffalo, New York, and the Boston Shakespeare Company. He completed his Bachelor's Arts from the University of New Orleans and his Master's of Fine Arts from Ohio University. Hyung, Jane, and Gavin come from their respective Irvine homes, which coincidentally are across the street from mine. So welcome to Ask a Leader, Kyung Kim, and welcome back, Jane Page and Gavin Cameron Webb. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, congratulations on your screenplay completed and shortly at the finish line with the online release November 15th. It's got such the witty, knowing vibe with ample servings of ironies and complexities. I'm really looking forward to seeing it done next week. A good indicator of a remarkable play is that Jane and Gavin have their director's hand in it. So set in Orange County, all points from Kung's doorstep to all around the county, this play, Pandemic. Folks are going to be both curious, Kung, about the extent to which this play is autobiographical, as well as find the plot line very relatable, especially everywhere in Orange County. Well, what's the story? How much of an autobiography is it, Kung? 
Well, as you know, I had uh, gotten sick during the uh, summer month of the pandemic. And so that's autobiographical because it's about uh, the spread of COVID and how people are getting sick and even dying. And then um, the second, uh, I think, element in the play, uh, just as probably important, is uh, there is a mass debate going on in the children's school. And uh, I unfortunately got myself involved uh, heavily in that debate because I have an eight-year-old child. At the time, she was seven. But. So I mean this with all earnesty when we see the works of art is we want to know who is your audience for Pandemic? Well, I mean, I first try to think about who I am, you know, and that's usually the process in which, you know, I go through and I'm Korean American. So, I mean, it's um, a lot of it. I think it has to do with, okay, what is my identity and, you know, how can I actually uh, tell a story and what's my pitch here or when I'm trying to think about, I don't know, the, who, the, who the central characters are. And so that was important to me, despite the fact that it does have a universal kind of claim in terms of, okay, uh, this is about public health protocols versus, I think, individual you know, rights and freedom, right? So although it's a story intended for pretty much you know, everyone who can basically relate to those issues, especially people who have uh, children and concerned about, you know, the school reopening and how do we safely reopen schools and how do we get our children back uh, safely, which was probably one of the universal proper questions during the pandemic and still an ongoing debate. I felt it really had a Korean American, I think, subjectivity, if you will, uh, kind of at center. And so those were the two kind of, I don't know, anchor points that I wanted to stress. And I'll ask that now, move the question up a little, is that in terms of you are speaking as a South Korean national in an American, let's say, Caucasian dominant culture kind of setting, in, especially in Orange County. So is, you're observing the difference then in how South Koreans and American leadership, societies, and cultures have managed this pandemic. Yeah, uh, I, I did uh, forfeit my uh, Korean nationality a while ago. So uh, I'm not exactly a South Korean national, but yes, I mean, you know, uh, my parents are still there. Uh, in South Korea, and I do follow South Korean news pretty scrupulously. So I do know how South Korean government has responded to the COVID-19, and I do use that as a comparison chart, if you will, to think about uh, and critically engage maybe some of the, you know, obviously shortcomings of uh, American response to the pandemic. And that's uh, something that I want to talk about, I guess, through the play. And the casting, let's talk about the casting process, all three of you. There's 15 characters, one of whom is always off screen, and they cover every category of dispositions regarding the masks. And I guess we could call this the 21st century pandemic version of central casting. They're not, they're not caricatured. I think you're very sophisticated, Kyung, and how you flesh them out. And so could the three of you talk about what it was like in casting all 15 characters in this pandemic play? Yeah, I had, uh, you know, because of my movie 
production experience in the past. I had still some contacts in Hollywood. So I was able to get some actors interested and many of them were interested in playing the main character because I think, first of all, I mean, Korean American roles or Asian American roles, especially male Korean American or Asian American roles are, are not that easy to come by, I think, you know, in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. So although they're very accomplished and established actors, um, they may not get opportunities to actually play, I think, mature leading roles. So there aren't that many. And secondly, obviously, because of the pandemic, <laughs> you know, there aren't uh, that many productions going on at the time. So I was able to approach, you know, various actors to play, obviously, the main character, Pete Kim. Shane is a, you know, veteran established uh, actor, and we're very glad. Oh. Uh, Shane Yoon, his name is. And then, um, Jane, Gavin, do you want to talk about other actors that you were able to approach? Well, we, we were very lucky. Uh, we both have worked with and around wonderful actress uh, who's based in Long Beach and talked to her about playing sort of the female leading character. And uh, she agreed. She was very keen on the play. And mm-hmm. also she's a mom. And she and, and her family have been dealing with mask issues as well. So the topic of the play was terrific for her. Her name is Tessalina Murphy. And then we have four students or alumni of the UCI drama department that are involved, which is exciting. And, yes. and a, a stage manager and a technical sort of director for us to get this, you know, from the table out to the Zoom world that are both UCI drama department alumni or students. So we're excited about the involvement of students uh, with the project. Gavin, yeah. do you want to talk about the, the uh, biggest challenge? The- I suppose the actual auditions that we did have were for the children's roles. Mm -hmm. There are three kids in their play. And uh, we solicited audition packages, I mean, videos from the kids. And we got our three kids, all of whom I must say are fantastic. And their parents have been terrific in helping with the technology, which is, of course, something of a challenge. Yes. But they ha- maybe they had some savvy with having used enough Zoom now. They had a lot of tricks up their sleeve, Gavin? Or uh, Probably more than we do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I have to ask, it's always when I talk to creatives on Ask a Leader is not to blow any kind of surprise elements. I want it to be a fresh experience for listeners when they take in the production or the exhibit, whatever it is. So we don't know, and I would like for Hume to unpack a bit What's meant by the sort of the central character's offspring, his daughter? I don't know how to pronounce it. I know there's two ways to pronounce it. How to pronounce her name and what did you intend to carry from what it, that name means in Korean? Yeah, uh, it's, it's Siwon, accent on the first syllable, Siwon, which also happens to be uh, said my daughter's you know, middle name. And she got it from her uh, grandfather who wanted to give her a Korean name, a solid Korean name. And it actually means poetic hill. And that's the name that she's been given. And it's not in the play, obviously, the meaning of her name. But I wanted that relationship to be special because in the play, the father and the daughter relationship, because it really personalizes, I think, a public sort of debate that we are confronted with and it really um, makes it intimate and personal 
and wanted to give some space for it. So that's why I have a number of scenes, maybe a couple, where there is that kind of conversation and the dialogue happening between the father and the, you know, his uh, seven or eight-year-old daughter. And it also solidifies the current relationship that the main character has with his wife versus there is another character interacting with him too from his past. So that might serve that role as well. Yes. Okay. Well, so it's not meant to be a, I know it's not my role, but I can't resist Kyung. I want to throw in one more, one more character in the play for, (laughs) uh, and it's, I I want, or uh, it's a feature perhaps Mm -hmm. a reference is, which of the characters knows well a local government official that's not publicly supporting best practices? I mean, Uh as an aspect of one of the characters so that you can sort of bring in that through line is there's local government leadership that's wanting in this whole mask debate. So that for those of you who've just joined us, I wanna reintroduce my guests. They are UCI Professor of Humanities and Screenwriter, Kyung Kim and Jane Page, UCI director and professor at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts and independent director, Gavin Cameron Webb, talking about the brand new play coming out. It'll be on November 15th at 4 p.m. We're going to give all the details at the end of the interview. Pandemic is the name of the production. It's Kung's original screenplay intended for this live Zoom audience. So I wanted to know Kung and certainly Jane and Gavin have this in mind as directors, could all these parents be, they represent sort of the proxies or they are proxies for the national election season? I mean, it was, it was on my mind that we, are, we, we do have an election coming up, certainly. I thought um, we were in the middle of the election. It's, yes. it's, I mean, it's, un, it's uncoming, done? yeah. It's, uh, it's, um, it's completing. Unraveling. <laughs> yes. So we're in the middle of pandemic and we're middle of election season. Yes. So that gave me, again, a pivot point. But again, I didn't really think specifically how this could be an allegory about, you know, certain kind of, I don't know, different the complexities and, and some of the even, I would say, stupidities that election season sometimes can, can venture into. And so it was definitely on my mind, but I didn't necessarily want to entertain it as much as possible. But, you know, obviously, inevitably, it's all there because I think sometimes you have to, when you're making an important decisions like mask wearing. I think clearly you can't really depend on, you know, I mean, obviously democratic principles, which is, okay, you you allow polls and uh, democratic votes to parents to decide whether our children should be wearing masks or not. I think that was idiotic decision, but certainly one that certain, you know, private schools uh, did go through. And certainly I wasn't so keen on it, but you know, it did happen. So I was making a commentary about that. So the principal of Maltese school, to what extent is she responding as far as the parents go to the financial or the social clout among the parents or did the generational and immigration status of those parents, who had the most kind of clout in her trying to sort out 
the constituents of the Maltese school. Yeah, I mean, the whole point of the play, again, Maltese is a fictional school, and th- there, there is some, I think, you know, um, obviously autobiographical element associated with it, but I, I want to make clear that there is a difference between, you know, the fictive school in the play and then the real school, you know, that my daughter was attending at the time. I think there are a couple of things. When I was experiencing this mass debate, there was this color divide. Unfortunately, I mean, I, I try to not emphasize it so much, you know, that there is this, you know, racial divide and, you know, even in schools, it's real. I, I didn't want to emphasize it so much, but it, it became all too apparent that many of the libertarians' parents who were against, right, mask mandate or mask, you know, compulsory ma- mask wearing at school happened to be Caucasian or white. And, those who uh, insisted on, okay, we need health protocols and we need uh, uh, schools to reopen safely. And we, in order to do that, we have to have uh, children wearing masks, happened to be all people of color. But they were so vocal, these white libertarian parents, that it became really anxious and almost fearful for us who wanted the protocols to be uh, prioritized. And everybody who supported mass mandates didn't want to actually speak out. And here you have obviously invisible kind of, I think, racism, right? That is actually coming into play. A lot of people of color who are afraid of, you know, this is 21st century, this is 2020. And we have a lot of obviously, uh, I think, you know, rice, you know, I mean, this is seven years after civil rights and blah, blah, blah. And yet we're so afraid. And it was just very select few who, including myself, who were given the microphone and, and, and speak, you know, uh, about the need and the mandate of, of mask wearing. So that's partly why I wanted to actually write the play, to give the voice again to those who were way too cautious Right? Way too cautious of, uh, about retaliation. And why does it have to be Asians and Latinos and, and Blacks, right? Still in this day and age. And it's the white folks who still get, obviously, the most attention. And that was part of the, uh, I think, racial dynamics that I wanted to think about through the play. Well, I'd like to pivot here to a real personal aspect of the collaboration between you three. And I want to know that this has meant more screen time for you, Jane. You're teaching classes this quarter at UCI. And Gavin has his own assignments and projects and obligations in the community. And I want to know it must be a labor of love with the two of you to work with a new colleague in your creative career, is it? Talk about that. Well, when uh, Kyung, as a neighbor, was talking about this situation that he was dealing with and wanting to write something, you know, we were nothing but encouraging because it seemed like a really important story, an important perspective. And writing a play, even for Zoom, is different than writing a film. And it's been exciting and it's been challenging at times. But the notion of also, Gavin did the breakdown so we could do it with only 10 actors, which is still a lot of people to coordinate and three of them being children. So you're coordinating with three families. 
and then the rest of the acting company, as well as stage manager. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a lot of moving parts, but we think it's important. I think it's a really interesting story and one that is sitting right on our table right now. Literally. So can you talk about the production that was a phenomenal production, that human error that you, Gavin and Jane, directed in the week of June 29th. So to what extent did doing that, which might've been one of the very first plays set on the Zoom platform, how did that inform you about directing Kung's Pandemic? Uh, Claudia, I should say first that I did not direct Human Error. I watched Jane do a masterful job doing that. And I think that her experience on that project, which she did so successfully, certainly helped us both enormously in uh, attacking this particular project. But it was probably very different. It's like an, it was an iteration of a Zoom play. And this, is a, this production of Pandemic is a new iteration still on Zoom platform, well, could you say? Well, that um, is true. It is, it, I mean, you can argue that this isn't a play. This isn't a screenplay. This is a Zoom performance. Correct. And as such, different from both a play and a movie or a TV. And yes, I think Jane's work on human error certainly did inform it because we are essentially dealing with the same delivery platform and the same issues about not being able to be in the same room with the actors and about having each actor having to set up their own camera and their own lighting and their own background and their own sound, all of which is common to Zoom. So I'd like for you to give us the details of how we can subscribe to the Sunday, November 15th, 4 p.m. performance. I would like to make sure that everybody's very clear that it's a live Zoom reading of the play. When we're working on a play, there are many stages that a play goes through from page to stage, and readings are the first sort of layer of development. So it is a reading of the play. I think it works great. It's designed for Zoom, but it's not like going to see a play. So it's a really different kind of experience people are going to have. And we have been very grateful that we've had support from the Center for Critical Korean Studies and Illuminations at the university oh, good. to help support this project to be developed. And it's illuminations.uci.edu is the link you go to, and there you can make a reservation and get a link in order to watch and listen to the live Zoom reading of Kyung's Pandemic. Okay, and as we're drawing down, I think one of my last questions directed to all three of you, I want to start with Kyung here. Did writing the screenplay, producing this play reading, did it resolve any issues for you, Kyung? Uh, yeah, you know, um, I could have well spent time, uh, especially when I was, you know, quarantined and isolated and, you know, obviously not, not feeling very well, um, moping, and also, um, you know, having this, you know, drawn out debate, you know, with other parents from school, really complaining, moping, uh, ranting, and so on and so forth. But I was able to productively use that time, so to speak, and put it on the pages. So 
I could do something really, I think, productive that may make people understand not only what I was going through, but, you know, what many parents were going through, you know, during the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. So in that way, I feel very grateful. I mean, there was a resolution there. I feel very grateful that it's being performed in this way. And hopefully, you know, at some point, it might get, a, you know, obviously more proper audience for it outside the Zoom or YouTube, as we now have in format. But I just want to say, I, I, I thought about calling it, you know, in, in many ways, like a Newton Court production, you know, this whole thing, because <laughs> the, I mean, it was those conversation dialogues, you know, during the terrible month, we were forced to obviously socialize outside and, you know, outside of the, the front porch of Jane and Gavin, that this all conceptualized, you know, how important it is for us to still connect and communicate, even though that there is so much fear and anxiety about socializing that I think gave this a life and gave us impetus to continue to, you know, live our lives and, and also to tell our stories. And, and that's probably the most important, I think, you know, that's the urge and the drive that most, you know, plays have had for thousands of years, whether it be Korea, whether it be, I don't know, Jakarta, or whether it be Britain or United States. So, I am extremely grateful for having participated in this manner and having met, you know, uh, you, Claudia, as well as Jane and Gavin, that we became such good friends and was able to use that friendship to translate into the story. Jane and Gavin, did this resolve any issues for you? I think one of the things, and I think Kyung was speaking to this, is the notion that because of being restricted in terms of our travel, Right. Um, we've we've suddenly got neighbors we know a whole lot better. And that's been a real pleasure and a real gift that we've become much more neighborly in our neighborhood. And I certainly feel very invested in the people that I am living around. And as we make our way through this horrible period of time, that that's not breakable. Well, I want to say in closing, like every dramatic piece. This one, it builds and it delivers and it draws in any theater patron into your sphere and it lands a blow or two by the time we get to the end. Kudos for creating that, Kyung. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So beyond being a cottage industry, the creation of pandemic might be a cul-de-sac industry. <laughs> <laughs> so right. uh, indeed it might be. We can hope it's a cul-de-sac industry. We will want to get back onto stage as soon as we can. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank all three of you for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Thank yes. you. My guests were UCI Professor of Humanities, screenwriter Kyung Kim, and UCI Director Professor at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts, Jane Page, and Independent Director Gavin Cameron Webb, talking about Pandemic, Kyung's original screenplay intended for this theater reading on November 15th, this next Sunday at 4 p.m. Well, that's my wrap. Stay tuned for SoCal New Waiver with Pass Forward. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And masks, they're still a thing you know. Mm -hmm.